All right, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you and uh, thank you for joining us this morning. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called I Am. We're going to be looking at a series of uh, I Am statements through the Gospel of John. Uh, but before we jump in to the sermon series, I want to pause and, and, and just recognize that this Sunday has been set aside um, as a national day to, um, to remember the need uh, of children um, that, that are at risk. It's called Orphan Sunday. And this Sunday set aside to raise awareness for the need for more foster and adoptive parents. And, um, you know, a few things are closer to the heart of God than taking care of kids that are vulnerable and in need. And few things model the love of the gospel as powerfully as when we open our hearts and when we open our homes to children who need both. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word here to visit, when it says to visit orphans and widows, means to visit them in their need, to visit them in support, right? Here's the thing. Our God is an adopting God, and He loves the outcast. And He paid a dear price that those who are outside of His family might be adopted in, and that means us that those who were um, walking outside of his blessing might be adopted into his blessing. So this morning, I want to just take a moment and, and really acknowledge those among us that have um, labored in this. And so I'm going to ask if you have worked um, with the foster care system as a, as a parent or as a social worker, or if you have adopted nationally or internationally, uh, if you're comfortable with this, if you're absolutely uncomfortable, you can just stay in your seat, but I'm going to ask you to stand because I would really like to pray a blessing over you. So go ahead. If you've worked in the foster care system, if you have been a foster parent or are currently, if you have adopted or are adopting nationally or internationally, I would love to pray a prayer over you. You guys are often misunderstood, undersupported, and undervalued. Um, today, we want to celebrate what God is doing in and through you as you serve. So you guys, let's pray. Father God, when we were lost, orphaned, and alone, you paid the price to make us your children. And each and every day, you foster us into being a people who model grace to the world. Father, I pray now for those who are on the front lines of love, and I ask that you will foster in them and in us those qualities that you so richly pour out on us. You are loving. So I pray, Lord, that you will help them to love freely and unconditionally those that they serve. Help them to have open hearts even when it hurts. Lord, you are patient. Help them to be patient even when they are tempted to despair of seeing progress. Father, you are kind. Help these, your servants, to reject cynicism. And always be full of kindness with a gentle and firm hand. And most of all, Father, you are faithful. You never give up on us, even when we blow it. When we're hurting, you're always there. Lord, help us to be like you. May we never give up on our children. And thank you for allowing us to be a part of helping children discover your purpose for their lives. Father, we look forward to the day when all of your children will be safe and healthy and can truly live in that wonderful place all of us long for, that place that's simply known as home. 
And in the name of Jesus, your precious and holy son, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, you guys, um, grab your Bibles, uh, your iPads, your iPhones, whatever it is that you use to read the Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the floor in front of you. Go ahead and grab that, and we're going to John chapter 8. That's page 895 in our Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to go ahead and take the Bible in front of you as our gift to you. Anything we can do to put the Word of God into your hand, to equip you to read it and, and to study it and, and to be engaged by it is a blessing to us. And so um, if you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift. We're going to be looking at a series of powerful statements in the Gospel of John in the coming weeks. They are I am statements. Jesus saying profound things like I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection, right? These are statements where we hear Jesus in his own words. And as we discover more about who he is, here's the thing, we, we discover about more about who we have been created to be. As we come to understand him as he is, we are freed to be who we were created to be. These statements give us profound insight, not just into Jesus, but into ourselves. So this morning, we're going to be starting with probably the most provocative and profound statement, the one that I think is honestly going to be the hardest uh, to unpack, um, but I think it's a great place to start. So we're going to be looking in John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59, starting in verse 48. And the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I didn't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of the Lord. You guys want to just take a moment and pray? So pray with me as we open the word of God. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for your word, that we would be receptive. Spirit, in the same way you hovered over the waters of creation, I pray that you would be here this morning hovering, uh, preparing our hearts for recreation. Lord, in this word, I know that you are inviting us into um, life with all of its abundance and all of its joy and all of its freedom. But Lord, we need you to open the spiritual eyes of our understanding to awaken our hearts to a greater delight and a greater desire that we would want you. So, Father, I pray that you would make your name great here this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You guys, this is kind of a crazy story as you unpack it. As I was reading it, I mean, I've read this passage a ton of times, and, and, and as I was reading it, I was trying to approach it um, in a brand new way, in a sense, not, not like novelty, but, but like it was the first time I read it. And as I'm reading through it, I'm, I'm, it's just weird. I mean, you got these guys that are in this temple, and they're having this fight, and it, and it's all this who's your daddy stuff. I mean, really, they're just going back and forth. And it's like, well, we're a father Abraham. And no, you're not a father Abraham. And no, if you're your father of the devil. And, and well, we don't even know who your father is. And, and they're just kind of, it's just going back and forth. And um, there's tons of tension, right? And, and then it gets to the end. And Jesus says this really crazy thing. Like, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> and then these guys freak out and they try to kill him. I mean... The average person is going to read this passage and first of all say, this is just weird. And secondly, they're going to say, so what? Right? I mean, it's like, not only is that weird, but I absolutely don't see how this relates to me at all. Um, how is this going to impact my life? These, this ancient story of these religious people having an argument in a temple and one guy being threatened with death. So here's the thing. Um, my goal for this morning is I want us to see three things. I want us, first of all, to get a clear glimpse of exactly what Jesus is saying here. What is he saying about himself and his mission? Secondly, I want us to see why the religious leaders responded the way they did. What's really going on in their response to Jesus? And thirdly, I think it actually has profound implications for us. And so the third question we're going to look at is, what does it mean to us? Why should we pay attention? And how is this going to impact our lives? All right, here's the thing. This is kind of the premise for the whole series. When we learn who Jesus is, it frees us to be who we were created to be. And so as we dig in, um, our goal is to learn more about Jesus, but in the process to learn more about ourselves. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? I mean, why is it so provocative that the Jewish leadership would be like ready to kill him, right? Uh, we're going to take a look in the minute at, at all of the, the who's your daddy stuff. We're going we're gonna to talk about that and, and, and why the, the issue of fatherhood was important. But for now, let's take a look at that one statement that sparks the, the Pharisees to violence, right? It's right there at the end of our passage in verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to understand this statement, we're going to have to go way back. Um, because he is actually making a reference to Old Testament um, history. And in fact, we're going to need to talk a little bit about one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament when Moses was called by God uh, to, to be his spokesman to um, the Pharaoh that Israel might be set free from Egypt, right? You guys are, are probably familiar with it. Some of you who are total late night people and can't sleep may have watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know, that whole kind of, you know, um, him kind of going out and delivering God's people, right? But at the beginning of that story is, is a really interesting section. Moses is, 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 has escaped from Egypt, and, and, and he's kind of got his own life going, and, and he's got a new start. And he's just walking along one day, and lo and behold, off to the side, he sees a bush on fire, and, and, and it doesn't seem to be burning up, right? It's just burning. <laughs> and the text, he's kind of like, I think I will look at that, right? It's like, I'm curious, what in the world, right? So he goes over there, and he's looking at this bush that's not burning, and all of a sudden, a voice comes out of it, right? It's God basically saying, hey, man, I got a job for you. I, I got a commission for you right? You came out of Egypt. You were raised in Egypt. You, you know Egypt. You understand the culture of Egypt. 
your heart has been broken when you realize that, that, that your brothers and sisters, your Jewish brethren and sisters were being persecuted and killed in Egypt and, and you ended up fleeing. I'm going to send you back. You're going to be my representative of deliverance because they're in bondage. They're enslaved and I've heard their cries and they're my people and I will never abandon them. And so you're, you're going to be the one. I'm, I'm going to send you back and uh, you're, you're going to become my 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 rod, in a sense, to bring discipline on the Pharaoh to deliver my people. And he gets a little freaked out. Moses is a little timid here. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm, what if they ask me who sent me? <laughs> what am I supposed to say? A burning bush? That's not very convincing. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you just show up one day and you're like, a burning bush sent me to you, right? Nobody's going to listen. All right, so listen to God's response. This is in Exodus chapter 3. Verses 13 through 15, I'm going to put it up on the screen. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. All right, profound moment. Moses is looking at this manifestation of God, the presence of God, and, and is like, how, how am I supposed to identify myself? And he's here not just talking about Israel. He's talking about his brethren, his, his Jewish brothers and sisters who had uh, basically turned on him before he left. And uh, he's like, how, wh- how am I supposed to identify myself? How, what's your name? How, who's, who sent me? And, um, and he says very simply, my name is this. My name is I Am. It's, uh, it's an interesting name, obviously. <laughs> um, the word itself is, is challenging because the word is uh, four Hebrew consonants. There's no vowels. And, and we would transliterate it in English by Y-H-W-H. That's his name. And it's a verb that means to be. So basically saying is my name is to be, that I, I, I am, right? It's a, it's a verb, not a noun, um, which makes it challenging, right? And here's the thing. We don't know how to pronounce it because there's no vowels in it. And that's why different people pronounce it different ways. You'll hear some people talk about Jehovah, and you'll hear some people talk about Yahweh. Those are transliterations. That's us trying to stick vowels in there to try to make some sense of these four consonants and figure out how to pronounce this name. It doesn't help that the ancient Jews never pronounced it. The ancient Jews considered it holy or sanctified or set apart, and so it was, it was not something that they even um, said, right? But it's a verb that simply means, I am. Sometimes pronounced, I am that I am, or I am what I am, right? So, so what does it mean? What kind of name is that? Why does God give himself a name like that? Well, here's the thing. It tells us about his character. When he says, I am what I am, what he says means is that he's changeless. There's no shadow of turning with God. He is eternally the same. That doesn't mean he's eternally boring. It means he's eternally full of life and joy and power and and exuberance. and, And God's not discovering who he is. He is the fullness of being. We discover who we are because we are not I am. We are becoming. We are becoming what we are. We are discovering the potential within us. We are learning what it means to be human, to be full, to love, and to to experience, right? God is the fullness of experience. He is changeless. 
When he says, I am that I am, it means that he is his own purpose for being. He exists for no other. He is God and he exists for his own glory and for his own end. And, and some people are like, well, man, that's, that sounds like you got an egotistical God there, man. He's got to be the center of the universe all the time. Everyone's got to worship him. He would be egotistical and it would be a power play if he were not the ultimate expression of all that actually is. When God says, I am the measure of beauty, that means that everything that is beautiful, that we understand is beautiful, is simply a reflection of the character and the fullness of God. When we say something is glorious, what we mean is, is that that reminds us of something that finds its fullness in God. God is the ultimate expression of all that is good and beautiful and holy and right. For him to say that he is the center of the universe is not egotistical. It's simply a statement of reality. For him to say that he is the ultimate worthy of our adoration and worship it is, is for him to simply speak truth. It's not egotistical. It's reality. For him to say that he doesn't deserve it would be a lie because he is the ultimate manifestation of everything we find praiseworthy and loving. When he says, I am what I will be, the future tense of the same verb, he's speaking of his power, that there is a sense in which God moves, even though he is outside of time, he moves in time and works out his will in time. And of course, in its most simple form, as a very simple statement, I am. It means he is the ever-present one. He is outside of time, eternal in his nature, right? For us, time is this thing that flows by. Every second goes by and there's no way to get it back. And there's no way to move forward at any faster rate. Time is this thing in which we exist that, that helps us define our, our, our moment by moment being. God created time and exists outside of it. He is an eternal being. He, he is the um, creator of all things, including this thing that, exists for us to, to move in called time, right? So here's the thing. In his name, God summarizes his character. In giving himself this name, he tells us a lot about who he is. He is the all-powerful one. He is the changeless one, the all-glorious one, the most powerful one. He is the beginning and the end, the one worthy of all of our adoration. So when Moses is saying, who should I say sent me? What God is saying is tell them, I am sent you the ultimate measure of beauty and power and glory, the only true and powerful God. It was a powerful statement during this period of time. Almost every religion, uh, cultural manifestation of understanding of God was polytheistic. They believed in many gods. So there were gods of light and gods of darkness, gods of water and, and gods of fire and, and, and gods of, of, of all kinds of things, right? What God is saying is, I am the one true God. You will represent me, the one who created all things, to my people and for my people. Now, the Jews considered this, this name, Yahweh, this name so holy, they wouldn't say it. And when the first Greek translations of the Old Testament occurred, um, they would substitute a Greek word, kurios, which means Lord, for Yahweh. So like when you read the Old Testament today, if you ever come across a passage where it says Lord and it's in all caps, that tells you that's actually the name of God right there. In the original text, that, that's actually Yahweh. Okay? But, but they have preserved that tradition of printing uh, the name Lord in place of his name. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he's doing two things. 
He's claiming the name of God, and he is claiming the nature of God. They're asking him, how, how would you know Abraham, right? Jesus made this audacious statement. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. <laughs> They're like, man, you're not even 50, right? How, how could you say something like that? He's just like, that's ridiculous. Unless he was there. And that's what he claims. Before Abraham was, I am. I knew Abraham because I was with Abraham. I was before Abraham. I created Abraham. This is nothing less than a declaration of personal deity. Jesus saying, I am the one true God you claim to worship. You've built this temple. They're standing in the temple. (laughs) You built this temple to worship the one true God, and guess what? It's me. All right, now pause and think about that for a minute. This is a pretty audacious claim. It was no less easy for the people of the first century to embrace than it would be for us today, right? I mean, we know a lot of people. We don't know very many people who are God. (laughs) We know a lot of people. We don't know very many people that are in their nature, timeless, eternal, infinitely beautiful, infinitely powerful, the ones who actually created all things and hold all things together, right? This is fairly unique. This is the kind of thing that would, today, if you meet somebody who says, man, I'm God, he's going to land you in a mental hospital, right? I mean, seriously, it's the sort of thing that, that if you knew and you were lying would make you genuinely evil. If you were saying, man, I'm God, because what you were trying to do was, in fact, have people give you God-like power over their lives, be wicked. Unless it's true. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his classic work um, called Mere Christianity. Um, I'm going to throw, throw the quote up on the, on the screen as I read it to you. You can read along with me. I love this. I love Lewis in general. He says, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people, people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. He is either liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Now, the Pharisees saw this clearly. In Jesus' presentation, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, the Pharisees saw exactly what was going on in this moment and exactly what Jesus was, was propositioning to them, right? And we can see that 
by their response in this passage. Now, there's a ton of tension as we move through this passage between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They had a tremendous amount of power and influence in the Jewish culture. They led out in in almost every way. And so they were given honor in almost every segment of Jewish society. And these guys lived um, in in the basking of that. I mean, that was their influence. That was their power. That was um, ultimately their their way of making a living. The Jewish leaders are are in this way seeking to um, um, establish in connection with Jesus their, their authority. And that's where all the the discussion about lineage comes from, why they're standing there and talking about fatherhood and all the rest of that. Um, The Jewish leaders took tremendous pride in their lineage. The fact that they were um, descendants, physical descendants of the man named Abraham, right? They divided the world into two camps, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, The word Gentiles is simply the word that means nations. So there's Jews and everybody else. I mean, that's kind of how they looked at the world, this sense of there's us and there's them. And and the us, the descendants of Abraham, are the ones who actually are living with a right to God's blessing. Because God blessed Abraham and said to Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed through your seed, through your descendants. Uh, The physical Jews, the Pharisees stood there and said, we are those physical descendants. We have a right to the blessing of God. And as a result, they were respected and had power and influence among the people. And then Jesus showed up. And Jesus had a way of saying things that nobody liked to hear. I mean, honestly, you ever read the Gospels? If he hasn't offended you yet, you haven't read closely enough. He is, a, he is the universal offender. He, he, will, he will say what is least expected, right? He shows up and he's saying things that, that challenged their, their power, that called them to humility instead of pride, right? He didn't toe the line of their religious rules. He didn't show up and, and say, well, I'll honor your traditions so that I gain your trust, and then I'll try to speak truth in a way that you can hear. He, he showed up and said what needed to be said and did what needed to be done. And these guys were deeply insulted. In fact, they were scandalized as Jesus didn't obey the, the rules of the elders and the traditions of their teaching. Because for them, that was how you approach God. If you want to make God happy, you have to obey these rules. If, if you want to come close to God, you, you have to do it through this religious system, right? Which means obeying the Sabbath and, and doing these sacrifices and, and obeying these rules. And, and Jesus would show up and he just continually, he, here's the thing. Jesus obeyed the law at every point. And he rejected their tradition anytime it wasn't found in the law. And so these guys were continually frustrated because their authority came on their interpretation of the law. The Jewish leaders, even though they were growing increasingly frustrated with Jesus, had to be incredibly careful in their interactions with Jesus. Because every time they have a conversation, like in our text, you can't really see it, but imagine them being in a public place. They're actually in the temple. So you have the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Jesus is teaching. The the Jewish leaders are kind of challenging him in this public place, and they're surrounded by people, right? Their conversation is, uh, is continually being overheard by others. And the Jewish leaders gain their authority by their influence over others. And so they have to be careful because the others love Jesus, All the poor and the marginalized love Jesus, 
right? Why? Because he consistently stands up for the poor. He feeds the hungry. He doesn't rebuke them. He heals their sick. He reaches out and touches people with leprosy, people that have been completely separate from human touch. He gives them dignity. He acknowledges their humanity. He meets them in their need. He is eye to eye with those who have been rejected by society. He, and, and in doing so, he undermines the importance of the religious elite by giving value and dignity to people they despise, by giving prominence to people they want to ignore. And the leaders respond by trying to tear him down. Their authority, their influence, their position in society is being threatened. And so all the way through this passage, obviously at the end, but, but all the way through this passage, there's this tension in which they're constantly trying to, in a sense, undermine people's confidence in Jesus. And they do that um, in a number of ways, one of which is making innuendos about Jesus, right? They knew the stories uh, about Mary, that Mary got pregnant before she was married to Joseph. And you can kind of see that coming out. Like in uh, verse 41, they say to him, we were not born in sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. That's them basically saying, look, our moms weren't sleeping around. Not like yours, right? We're clean. We can go all the way back to Abraham. There's no immorality in our past, right? Who are you to teach us? You don't have the moral authority. You don't have the social standing. People should disrespect you, not give you authority. In verse 44, at the beginning of the passage we read, they said, are, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? You know, when they call him a Samaritan, it's interesting because the Samaritans were people that were, they lived in Samaria. That's why they were called Samaritans. But the people that lived there were actually um, people that were both Jewish and Gentile. It was a population of people that um, were populated by mixed marriages, and they were despised by both groups. They were despised by the Jews and they were despised by the Gentiles around them. People tended to uh, go around that land. If you were a, a Jewish holy man, you wouldn't even travel through that land. Um, maybe you've heard of the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman when she goes, when goes to the well and actually has a personal conversation with a Samaritan woman and ends up um, giving her tremendous dignity, even though she was losing dignity even from her own society. Here's the thing. When they accuse him of being a Samaritan, what they're saying is not only were you born of sexual immorality, but your dad was a Gentile, which we're like, big deal. But that's like a huge insult for them. It's like, like your dad was one of those rejected people. Your dad was one of those people that, that we don't even interact with, right? Not only that, you're empowered by a demon. That became kind of their official line. Because here's the thing, as much as they got frustrated with Jesus and as much as they, they, they got um, uh, annoyed with him, they had to explain him, right? This guy's going around healing people. He's going around feeding people. He's going around doing incredibly good things. And then people are like the people that are being healed are looking at the Pharisees and saying, well, what are we supposed to think about that? He says he's the son of God. And he just fed 5,000 people. He says he's the son of God. And he, he just healed that person of blindness. He says he's the, what are we supposed to think about that? They couldn't deny his power. So they had to come up with an explanation. And the way they explained that was to say that he was actually empowered by demons. That became the official line, that he was demon-possessed and that the demons were acting as angels of light to deceive people. So he was doing all these great things for people 
in a way to um, ultimately lead them away from God, right? So this is their official line. He's a Samaritan. He's a, so it's all part of their smear campaign. So all the way through this, what I want you to see is there's this, there's this antagonism. There's this personal frustration they have with him. And then you get to verse 59, right? In verse 59, when he finally says, look, verse 58, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, it, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? This is what breaks the, the dam and the floodgates of their wrath pours out. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. Right? This isn't like kids picking up rocks and throwing them at somebody they don't like to make them go away. This is an attempted execution. Right? Stoning was the Jewish form of execution, like hanging or the electric chair. This was their way of putting someone to death. Now, this was an extreme reaction. This wasn't normal even for them. I mean, these guys didn't just go around stoning people every day. Right? It wasn't a normal thing for them just to pick up rocks and try to kill somebody. Normally, they would have them arrested. If they thought there was an offense, they would bring them to court. There would be a legal proceeding. But in this moment, it's like a lynch mob. They are so infuriated. They seek to bring what they call immediate justice. They are so surprised, so angry at his claims. Now, if you were to ask them why they were doing what they did, I have no doubt they would tell you we're doing it to protect the glory of God. This guy's a blasphemer. This guy is taking the name of God to himself. And so we're actually doing God a favor by putting him to death. We are protecting the glory of God. And I'm sure that's how they would explain it to themselves. Even as they broke the law, they would be saying they were upholding the law. Even as they violated their own codes, they would be saying they were doing it for the deeper desire of actually protecting the very codes they were violating. The law calls for a death sentence for that kind of blasphemy. And so they would just say, well, look, we're maybe we're a little overzealous in this case, but it's because we were so inflamed by our love for God. But here's the catch. They weren't motivated by God's glory at all. They were using the name of God to protect themselves from the claims of God. See, the real motive for doing what they did was to protect themselves, their view of life, their view of, of this is what makes me worthwhile. This is what gives me glory. This is, this is what makes my life worthwhile. They were seeking to destroy the voice of Jesus because his voice was threatening, right? In fact, Jesus, in fact, told them that in verses 41 through 43, right after they said, you were born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? I love that. It's like, why can't you guys get this? (laughs) I just keep telling you the truth and inviting you to love. I keep telling you the truth and and inviting you to grace. Why, Why don't you get this? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why were they not listening? Because they didn't like what he had to say. That's the bottom line. They can claim they were being motivated by the glory of God, but the reality was they were, they were motivated by a desire to protect their own way of viewing the world. They were, they were deeply motivated because this, their way of approaching God is what gave them value. It's what gave them um, 
that took great pride in their accomplishments. And when Jesus came and threatened that, he threatened their identities. He threatened the very things they thought they needed to be worthwhile. They weren't listening because they didn't like what they were hearing. So they came up with all reasons to, all kinds of reasons to reject his word. They, were, they, they set out to deceive people to gain influence, and honestly, I believe they deceived themselves in the process, and they ended up rejecting God in the name of God. The irony of this chapter goes deep. I mean, they are claiming to worship God in the very temple that they pick up stones and seek to kill him in. They hardened their hearts, and with hearts of stone, they picked up stones to silence him because they couldn't stand to hear what he was saying. Jesus was simply saying, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. And I want to tell you the truth, because the truth will set you free. You believe lies, and those lies enslave you. Those lies influence your decisions. Those lies, you're basing your life on a lie. I want to tell you the truth. That truth is going to be deeply unsettling because it means that you believe things about yourself that aren't true. You don't see yourself clearly. But in telling you that truth, I will set you free. If you'll just listen to me, if you'll just stop trying to be God and let me be God, if you will stop trying to be what you can't be and to do what you can't do, I'll set you free. So what does all this have to do with us? We can understand now what Jesus was saying. We can understand now what the context was, why the Pharisees were, were so riled up, and, and in the end, um, even to the point of, of just craziness, seeking to break the law in the name of the law and actually murder Jesus right there in the temple. Here's the thing. It's pretty easy to get down on the Pharisees. <laughs> the Pharisees take a lot of heat, and a lot of people like to condemn Pharisees. In fact, sometimes we get downright pharisaical in our condemnation of Pharisees. Um, because here's the thing, while they were self-serving and driven by self-protective power and, and pretty hard-hearted, the reality is they're just like us. The reality is every single one of us has a little Pharisee in us. I mean, who, who likes it when God shows up and says, hey, you're doing that wrong? Who likes it when, when God shows up and holds up a mirror to our hearts and invites us to look, and what it shows us is that we are more selfish than we thought we were, that our motives aren't quite as good as we thought they were, that even the good deeds that we did, even the way we served our community was actually motivated by self-glory, right? That, that, that we really just did that really kind thing because we wanted someone else to see how kind we were, or, or we just needed to, to, to make penance. Like we needed, I'm not feeling very good about myself, so I'll go do this thing to make me feel good about me. So in the end, even your good deed is about you. When God shows us how incredibly self-centered we are, how everything we do, even, even when we say we love someone, what we often mean is very simply, I love the way you make me feel. I love you. And what that really means is you are good for me. And by the way, I might stop loving you if you stop being good for me. And I'll call it falling out of love because that sounds a whole lot better than I'm really selfish. And you no longer are meeting my needs. So I'm going to find someone else who does. When God holds up that kind of mirror and shows us our hearts, who doesn't get a little defensive? 
Who doesn't want to start protecting themselves a little bit? Who doesn't want to start saying, I, I don't think you're quite right? Even if God is showing us these things to set us free, it's not a fun process. And it's one that we're often going to resist. You know why? Because we are filled with pride. We are. Pride means very simply that we need to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, which causes us to puff up our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. We tend to exaggerate a public image of ourselves. We have a very difficult time being real with others, and honestly, we have a very difficult time being real with ourselves. We don't even want to deeply examine our own motives because we don't like what we see. And pride puts us in that space where we're either puffed up in pride, causing us to compare ourselves to others, which means that we condemn others. And you're like, dude, I'm not even religious, right? You're talking to me about all this religious pride and stuff. Well, you, you still do it. It's a human thing. It's a broken thing. It doesn't matter what you want to call it, right? You could be puffed up in pride because you recycle and your neighbor doesn't. You can be puffed up in pride because you have a talent, right? Or, and someone else doesn't, or because you've exercised for three days in a row and someone else hasn't, right? Even though you didn't exercise for 10 months before that. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can get puffed up in pride? Like, I've been eating healthy for three days in a row. Look at that slob. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, pride just comes in and it, and it puffs us up and it deceives us and we fall in love with this exaggerated image of ourselves. And in the meantime, we're constantly hiding all the things that don't measure up. We're constantly hiding the things that, that we don't want to look at about ourselves and we definitely don't want others looking at. We all have a little Pharisee in ourselves because we're all prideful. You guys, humility is an incredible gift. We were created for humility. The word humble simply means lowly, low to the ground. Things that are low to the ground are secure. Things that are low to the ground have strength. Pride puffs us up lifts us above our station or, or lifts us above what is real. And we have to constantly defend our, our place up here by telling more lies to ourselves, projecting more deceitful images to others, hiding our weaknesses. Humility allows us to be real. See, somebody's humble has nothing to defend and nothing to prove. Somebody who's humble, man, you come up to somebody and humble and you're like, dude, you suck at that. And they'll be like, I know, let me show you this. I suck at this too. I'm not threatened because I'm okay. You know, it's like I can see my weaknesses. I can see my strengths. I'm not defined by my strengths, nor am I destroyed by my weaknesses. Humility is a great gift. Humility is something that we have lost because we so desperately want to be like God. So when we allow God to be God, it frees us to not be God. It frees us into humility that is honest and secure, that has nothing to defend and nothing to prove. The ultimate enemy of our humility is is our pride, our need to think more highly of ourselves than is true, to puff up our strengths and ignore our weaknesses. You guys, God wants to set us free into the power of humility. That's a very simple way of saying that He wants us to have lives of integrity. He wants us to have lives that are real. He wants us to stop pretending, to stop fighting, to stop self-defending, to stop working, to build what we can't build. God wants to set us free into humility, and that means that he's going to have to challenge our pride. 
He has to show us where we believe lies so that we can instead believe truth. That very simply is what the Bible calls repent and believe. <laughs> Phrases that have been destroyed by our, our, our cultural um, and often arrogant Christian expressions of them. But to repent and believe is a beautiful thing. It simply means I reject the lie that's controlling me and leading me into self-destruction. And I believe the truth that delivers me into humility and freedom and power and joy, right? So he's inviting us to repent and believe as he simply shows us truth. He shows us where we're broken and hurt and selfish so we can admit our need for grace. And he does it in love. Because it's only in truth that our hearts are set free. In joy and power, humility, all the things we most desperately want in life. You guys, that's the reason he shares truth. To point us to grace. That's why he shared it with the Pharisees. It was the same motivation, inviting them to a new life, to forgiveness, to rest and recreation. But their pride... Couldn't take it. Here's the thing this morning. I know some of you are exhausted with trying to fix yourselves. Some of you are exhausted trying to be wise enough, good enough, smart enough. Exhausted trying to have it all together for yourself and everyone around you. You're exhausted trying to make God happy with you with your religious behavior. You're exhausted with trying to get it all right so people think highly of you. You're exhausted with trying to keep people happy because you desperately need them to tell you you're okay. You're exhausted trying to have all the answers because you feel like you have to have them to be in control of the variables of life, to have it all together. You're running and you're running and you're running. And the harder you run, the less progress you seem to make. I have incredibly good news for you this morning. God offers you a different way to do life. It is the way defined by grace, not religion. That is founded on his success for you, not your success for God. It was purchased for you by his blood on the cross when he died in your place as your substitute and rose again a new life so that you could have a new hope. It is not based on your ability to impress God with your religious behavior. Some of you think, man, I just got to get my life together for God. When I get my life together for God, then I'll be okay. So I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start doing these things. And then you need to realize, man, that's the same treadmill that you were on before, just under a different name. It's a lot of energy trying to achieve what you can't get to. Grace is an invitation to rest, to rest in who God is, to rest in what he's done for you, to rest that he loves you, gives you a new identity, extends you grace, favor you don't deserve so that you can have a new start you could never earn. And the thing with grace is that it has to be received, not earned. Grace is a free gift that's only given freely. Grace is favor that is undeserved, that will not be given to people who think they deserve it. The Pharisees were outside uh, of the grace. Why? Not because Jesus didn't offer it to them, but because they were too arrogant to be humble enough to receive it. I saw a video this week. Um, two girls in Indiana. It's like a true story. This, the, the, you're getting it from the train's perspective because they actually have a cam on the front of the train. 
and, and he's going across this super long bridge. And all of a sudden, as you're going along, you hear the horn tooting and you see these two people like scurrying on the tracks. It's an 80 foot drop into two feet of water. They can't jump. So they just run. And as they're running, man, this train is bearing down on them. I thought about showing the video this morning, but one, it, was, it wasn't very good quality, and two, it just was kind of disturbing, right? I mean, you're like, it's like you get the conductor's perspective. Man, what a horrible job being that train. You're like, it takes me two miles to stop this thing. It's so heavy. I can't do anything about it. I'll just honk the horn and hope they survive. You know what I'm saying? Like this train is bearing down on them, and at the last minute, they do the only thing they can do. They lay down on the tracks. You can see them scurrying. They get right between the rails. They lay down as flat as they can be. And they survived. (laughs) Thankfully. Pretty amazing. Then they ran off. And they used the footage to find them and uh, convict them of trespassing. But um, (laughs) seriously, they were dumb. They shouldn't have done that. Um, They gave that poor conductor a heart attack. I have no doubt. He probably had PTSD coming out of that. But but here's the thing. they did what the only thing they could do, and it was probably the least intuitive thing. They gave up. They stopped running to where they couldn't go, and they just laid down. And that struck me as a powerful image of the invitation of the gospel. That God is telling you, you don't have to work for his favor. You don't have to make yourself better. You don't have to earn what he gives. Grace is an invitation to humility. And there's nothing more humble than simply laying down before God and saying, I can't do it. I can't make it. I can't fix it. I can't do it on my own. Because you are God, I am free to be human. Because you are unlimited, I am free to be limited. Because you are glorious, I am free to be inglorious. I I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. You guys, that's not weakness. That's sanity. To come to the God of the universe and simply say, I'm not you. And I desperately need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Are you ready to let God be God? You guys, over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at, at seven statements. And, and, and in these statements, Jesus expands a little bit more than just I am, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. With each one of these, there is a profound challenge and a profound invitation, right? When he says, I am the door of the sheep, when he says, I am the bread of life, these are profound statements about himself and profound invitations to us. So I invite you to come back to stay in this study because we're going to see in very specific ways how these invitations are beautifully challenging, beautifully freeing, as he tells us the truth to set us free, to humble us, to let him be God. So you guys, let's not be Pharisees. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'm glad you're here. It's a safe place to ask questions. It's a safe place to, to, to explore this whole Christianity thing. But I'm going to encourage you, ask real questions. Don't be a questioner. Be someone who asks questions. You know the difference. The heart of pride or the heart of humility. The heart of pride, you just ask questions as weapons. The heart of humility, you ask questions because you want to learn. You want to engage. You want to understand. Come as a questioner. Come in humility and and actually engage in dialogue. Let's enter into real conversation. If you're a follower of Christ, 
I'm going to encourage you to come with the humility of expectation. Not the pride of, man, I've studied. I've read John so many times. I know all that stuff. Right? Don't, don't come thinking you have it all. Come expectantly, knowing that God's going to meet you in it. That there are things that he will show you that you desperately need to see. Because God will bless you. So let's come in humility. And let's come seeing what he's got for us. You guys, we're going to move into a time of response. And, and during this time, I'm going to put some questions on the screen and, and ask you to respond to God. Create a little bit of space for you to do that. While we're doing that, uh, I'm going to encourage you, some of you to go ahead and fill out that worship response card that's in your bulletin. Um, we put that in there because we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know you were here. There's a space for you to put prayer requests on there. We would love for you to fill that out and, and, and we'll pray with you. And we'll pray for you. Our leadership team prays over those every week. We'd love to know how you got here. Um, if somebody invited you or, or you found out about us uh, over Facebook or whatever it was, we would love for you to, to put a note on there if you're a first-time uh, guest with us. And um, we'd love to know how you, how you found us and how you got here. Um, by the way, if you are a guest with us, there's a gift for you at Connection Point. Connection Point is uh, right out in the lobby. It's labeled out there with a sign. Um, we're not going to try to get your information so we can put you on some spam list. We really just want to honor you and say thank you for visiting. And so go by Connection Point. We would love to, to give you a gift. All right, so some questions for you to consider as we move into our time of response. First of all, where are the areas of your life that you take great pride? Now we're going to get into this more, but you need to realize not all pride is bad. There are some things you take great pride about, and that's healthy. You know, it's, it take, I take great pride in my children. I take great pride in, in working hard. Those are, those are good things that it's good to, to take pride in, right? But let's identify where are those areas that you do take great pride, because those are areas where you're strong, but I guarantee you you're tempted to take bad pride in too. So where are those areas for you? Where are those areas that you tend to, to like, to look at strengths, to celebrate success? Second question, are those things getting in the way of listening to God? That's where good pride becomes bad pride. When we start looking at those things and saying to God, I deserve success because I'm good at this. I deserve honor because I'm better than so-and-so at this. Good pride goes to bad pride and it gets in the way of our listening to God. So just for yourself, where are those areas where you allow your good pride to go bad? The things that, that you should be proud of in a healthy, humble way to become unhealthy ways that you try to prop up your identity to, to make yourself like God. Thirdly, what is God asking you to lay down to just let God be God? I don't know what that is for you. But what is it that, that you are just clinging to, man? You are just having a hard time yielding to God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I need this, or I'll do this, or this is my thing, or this is my direction, or this is my plan, or what is that thing for you? Where you're trying to say to God, I am that I am. Bless my plan. Instead of coming to God and saying to God, you are God. How do I come in line with you? All right, I'm going to pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We're going to share communion in a moment after our response time, but I'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are a gracious God, that you invite us into relationship. Um, 
And man, even that's an act of grace. We've offended you. We've rebelled against you. We have misrepresented you. We've lied about you in our hearts. And yet you haven't grown proud. You have not um, become offended. You, you are humble. And in your humility, you reach out to us in love and invite us to truth that we can see you as you actually are and be free to see ourselves as we were created to be. Father, I thank you that you've demonstrated your love to us so clearly in Jesus. God become man that he might live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die and rise again that we might have hope. You guys take a few minutes, pray, let God speak to you. We'll share communion in a moment.